Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. And we've got a very, very special guest today who's also uh, extremely famous. Uh, He wanted me to let everybody know. And his name is Richard Steenen. Richard. Hey, Brian. Hey, John. Good to hear you guys. Welcome, Richard. Great to have you. So, Richard, John and I have known you for, uh, gosh, I guess decades. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time together over the years talking. And I think the, the very first time you and I did any kind of video or podcast, we're actually in the Detroit area. And we were walking on a railroad track. And you had found some uh, iron railroad ties. And you're like, hey, I'm going to take these back home. And you have a forge in your backyard, and you, you actually <laughs> turn those into implements, which I thought was I thought was pretty cool. Um, but one of the things we discussed on on that walk was uh, you you didn't get your start initially in cyber. You kind of had a, a really unique there, start. There was no cyber when I got started. Right there was just uh, computers, and I was a computer user um, doing crash simulations for General Motors, and. So heavy computer user, but then, you know, long 92 timeframe, I discovered the internet. By the end of the year, I had started an ISP and mm-hmm. over the next 12 months, it was a crash course in networking. So, you know, I had to learn how to type in net masks and, you know, all the ins and outs of establishing a point of presence in Detroit at a printing plant, uh, oddly enough, um, because back then you had to pay for every phone line. And every sec, every minute on every phone, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you, you you had this story that you told me about from your when you were working uh, in the automo- automotive industry, and it was about risk tolerance and quality control, and this whole juxtaposition of that with sort of cybersecurity and how we look at things. But uh, maybe you could uh, reshare that story about how like Japanese vehicles at that time compared to some of the vehicles that were being made in the United States and those differences and how that evolved. Yeah. In the, in the 80s, the, it was always my theory that Japanese brilliantly entered our market. So they entered with very, very small cars. You remember them. Um, I, mm-hmm. I remember being my buddies picking up my, uh, my friend's, uh, Honda Civic and, you know, moving mm-hmm. it onto the grass, right? Just four people could pick up a car. Yeah, I had a 1984 Dodge Colt with a 1.4 liter engine and a hatchback and yep. women loved it. They loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it works great for anybody who's 50 percentile. Sorry, Brian. Um, <laughs> it, so basically they, they didn't introduced vehicles that fit everybody. They just introduced vehicles because they, they're only going to sell 20 or 30,000 of them when they first entered the markets. And they established a reputation for quality. And of course, they were, uh, the Japanese, you know, were the masters of producing quality. Um, and that was like a land and expand. And now, you know, their vehicles are almost as big as U.S. vehicles. And they drove quality, and that changed the automotive industry dramatically, right? Their their tolerances were measured in uh, millimeters. Uh, they were measured in, when I was working at GM in, throughout the 80s, pretty much, you know, we could deal with three-quarter inch variants. Wow. One component to the next or the way they stacked up. Um, and that was just ridiculous, right? It was intolerable. So, uh, that's how the Japanese did so well in the auto industry. Wow, and and like Brian said, we've we go back a, a long way with you and Richard. A lot of a lot of our guests will will know you primarily for all of the work you've done on the in the cyber side, and um, you're a Gartner analyst, and now you've got IT Harvest. You've, you're just a very common. Everyone knows you, uh, and you're still you know just running strong. But but for those who maybe want to fill in some of the pieces. Talk about how you went from that to cyber and then into Gartner sure. and then from there. Yeah, that's yeah. It's such a fascinating story. Let's hear about it. Yeah. You know, um, back then, my probably my 20th startup was an ISP. 
And it, but it was the first one that just took off, right? I learned, you know, rapid growth. We had 11 employees within six months. And I had learned, you know, important things like PR is more effective than advertising. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, you know, if you think back to those days, the internet was in the news every day. The uh, television and newspapers loved reporting on it. And they always drove out to my office in West Bloomfield to interview the guy. Um, so I kind of got media training on the job at the same time. <laughs> and, but I didn't manage to hold on to the company. I was ousted and I knew I was being ousted. So I s sent a, a message to the other ISP in town. And I said, because I had decided there's no way I'm going back to automotive. I love the internet and the cycle time and it changed every six months. It's a completely new thing. And the auto industry change, changes, if at all, every 10 years. Um, so they said, yeah, come on over, you're hired. So I went to the other one. I was the ninth employee at a company called Netrex. Mm. And Netrex was a, you know, Sun and Cisco and Checkpoint reseller. And they came up with this concept of, hey, you know what? We got to sell security with these internet connections. So when I joined them, it was technically I was a salesperson. Um, I, I was responsible for automotive. So I sold Ford, their first firewall, and I got ITT Automotive on the internet the first time mm. and um, did all this stuff for Lear Seating. And that was my introduction to security. You know, and I, so I learned on the job, you know, was in the very first class of certified checkpoint security engineers. Um, and luckily in the process, we did a big project with Volkswagen with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And the day that Netrix asked me to uh, do cold call Tuesdays and gave me, you know, a few letters in the yellow pages to start calling is the day I quit because I'm a horrible salesperson and, <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't do that. And uh, so I went to PwC and PwC gave me my introduction to, you know, large enterprise uh, organization as well as their security postures. And I got to do a lot of security assessments or pen mm -hmm. testing of little companies like Dell and mm -hmm. uh, BNSF Railroad, um, People's Gas out of Milwaukee, um, SunTrust Bank in Georgia. And it was great because you'd always find stuff, right? You could always, that's kind of the, you know, it's just like an attacker. Right? You succeed in your security assessment if you find one thing. And there's millions of things. So, of course, you're going to find something. So, that, you know, mm -hmm. gave me that exposure. Um, I foolishly still wanted to be an entrepreneur. So, one of our clients uh, had this concept for a e-commerce solution. And I was, believe it or not, I was the e-commerce go-to guy at PricewaterhouseCoopers because nobody else mm -hmm. even knew about the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and he had two models. You know, one was using, an, you know, a you know, newly funded company that had all these Microsoft things to do e-commerce except credit cards and a payment gateway and all that. The other one was, um, you know, more modern with open source systems. And I chose the open source one, of course. And the partner said, okay, well, let's get on the phone with the client, Isaiah Thomas, who, of course, in Detroit is a legend, right? He's everybody. I almost named my second son Isaiah because <laughs> he was just that, you know, that influential, you know, the captain of the Detroit Pistons. Got on the phone with him, explained all this. And he says, well, can you come with us to New York to talk to the web developers? Bolt was the name of the company. Um, I said, yeah, sure. Okay, meet us at the Troy airport tomorrow morning. So I go to the airport. And I'm on private jet with Isaiah and his team. And on the plane, he offered me a job of, to head up this Isaiah.com and its subsidiary iGift for gift certificates. And that was, you know, it was cool, but it was the end of the dot-com boom, so it busted. And I was looking for a job, and, you know, I found something at Gartner, and I talked to them and uh, went out for the famous Gartner uh, interview, you know, where they just put you in a room and you got to defend some uh, report that you wrote in the two hours beforehand. And they just 
pummeled me. You know, it was kind of embarrassing. And But they came back and gave me an offer. But it wasn't the offer I asked for. You know, I'd asked for, uh, well, I'll just be transparent. I'd asked for $187,000, you know, salary. You know, know, because I've learned over the years, I don't care what the bonus is or what the benefits are, Mm -hmm. you never get those. Exactly. So, they came back and gave me, they said, oh, we got you your number, $187,000 package. (laughs) So I said, no, sorry, just can't do it. Because at the time, it was still, you know, like uh, 2000. And I still thought the internet was a big thing and was going to come back. And so they said, okay, sorry, but I got a call from Bob Hafner. He said, just check in to make sure the only reason is money. And I said, yeah, that's it. Three months later, I'm getting off an airplane, talking to yet another startup that wants me to be their CEO uh, as soon as they get funding, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I've heard that story so many times over the years. They, and it was Bob Hafner. Hey, you know, we've looked at a lot of people and you're the best candidate. Do you still want to join? And I'm like pumping my fists, going ka-ching. And yeah, so that's how I joined Gartner in 2000. Hmm. Wow. That's really, really interesting. So I I know a lot of people, Richard, know you from Gartner and you've you've done a number of great tech companies as well. And then you, with that entrepreneurial spirit that you had, of course, um, built IT Harvest. Mm -hmm. And the security yearbook, I think, is just becoming this this thing now that people look forward to every year. And, uh, you know, COVID kind of jumped in there a little bit when it was was first coming out. But I, I love it. I love looking through it. But I'd really like to talk to you about your your newest project. Not that the security yearbook is is over, of course, but uh, your analyst dashboard. And mm-hmm. this has been getting so much buzz. I know uh, we're big uh, consumers of it. We we use it quite a bit. But uh, tell everybody a little bit about that. And I'd love to hear about you know there there's so many facts and figures and stats that you put together. And I and I love how you relate it to you know there's layoffs in the industry. But what does that really mean? I love how you tie that together. But tell us a little bit about the analyst dashboard and maybe some some cool things that you've discovered or some you know interesting stats or figures. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the you know so. Pulling together the security yearbook three years in a row now, I'm working on the next year's edition right now, um, gave me confidence that my data was getting pretty concise and clear. And and it's been through editing three times, so the actual names of the companies are all spelled right, etc. <laughs> and, and in the back of my head, I always wanted to go back to why I started IT Harvest. If you think about the name... You know, I literally launched IT Harvest in 2005 to harvest all the data on the cybersecurity industry mm-hmm. and have it at my fingertips because I was so frustrated at Gartner that Gartner's data quest, which was supposed to be doing that, was already fading away when I joined. Um, and I love data quest. It's just mm-hmm. a constant flow of information because I love information i love data i just uh, you know very distracting maybe i've got an addiction problem <laughs> and um so and i had actually tried doing that in 2005 but fast forward to to 2022 and it's a lot easier to build an app you can build a modern web app fairly quickly and simply um so i started you know, all through 2021, I was looking for development teams to build it. And I was so frustrated because going back to my automotive experience where I designed automotive components and mechanisms for trunk latches and car seat recliners and seat tracks, uh, you never just like specified exactly what it looked like and how much it weighed and what it did. You'd have to prototype it. And I learned through that experience that the more times, more prototype cycles you build in, the more likely that your production product will pass all the tests and weigh the right amount and be the right expense, et cetera. Every single development team I've ever approached says, yeah, it sounds like something we can do. Uh, Give us the specs. And by specs, they mean give us complete, you know, Figma wireframes of every single page and give us the exact description of what every single function does. And I'm, I'm like, I, you know, 
I have, I've built a website and I've done it in WordPress where it's what you see is what you get. So you just move stuff around. Um, but I can't tell you what an app is going to look like until I've had customers using it and they mm, tell sure. me what it should look like. So it seems, you know, it almost seems like none of what I learned as a, you know, mechanical engineer is translated over into software engineering. Mm -hmm. So, but luckily in the meantime, something has come along called no code, no code way to think about it is WordPress for building apps, right? So instead of uh, deciding where the text box goes, you're deciding the functions and the workflows. If somebody clicks here and they're a subscriber, then they get to do this. And you, we've got now 1500 workflows in our app. Wow. And we just, you know, I hired an amazing, amazing intern uh, out in California and he just totally enamored with the whole thing, the whole process. He's never written a line of code and yet he has built the entire app, which, which you guys have seen. Um, and he, he spends ridiculous amount of hours on it, pulling mm -hmm. two nighters. And so far the record, I think is a three nighter <laughs> and, and he still functions. I can talk to him afterwards. Um, and you know, we launched the MVP. It took, a week for me to transition off of all the spreadsheets I use all the time mm -hmm. um, because having a database and the ability to query it is much better than a spreadsheet and much, much faster. And then we just iterated over and over. We've rebuilt it three times practically from the bottom up. In, in We only launched in March, so it's uh, seven or eight months. Wow. It is, it is quite an incredible tool. I, and I mean, you've been around this industry a long time. Obviously, you work, you know a lot of the startup community. You follow startups in any way with your yearbooks. You're following all of that. When you think about the dashboard, what are some things in there that even surprise you? Like, and, and, you know, again, some of the things we'll talk about, I'm dying. You, you write on things about there really isn't consolidation in the security industry. Yep. I mean, yeah. look at all the companies and, and things like this. I mean, you, you, you write about those, but what are some things that just like, wow, I did, you know, completely surprised even you after all of these years in this industry when you started building that dashboard? Well, first of all, one cool one is, is we extracted the founding year for all the companies and lined them up on a bar chart. And it, it's not, you know, just up and to the right. It's kind of like a bell curve mm -hmm. with a peak about six years ago. And, you know, of course, that's the case because they don't have historical data. So I can't tell you, you know, for each year how many companies started. I can just tell you for each year how many companies that are still around were started. And so we created this graph and it had this huge tail stretching off to the left to 1763. And I said, oh man, somebody fat fingered a, a founding date. So I just went to the app, looked up what company that was. And lo and behold, it was a real company in Germany. It really was founded in 1763 to wow. make parts for printing presses. And then, you know, German companies are long-lived. They don't have the active acquisition thing going on. Um, and they just pivoted until all of a sudden they're an identity and access management vendor. Wow. You know, it's just wow. crazy. Just crazy. <laughs> they're around. Um, there are a lot of other companies still around that were founded in the 90s. Um, mm. Still some endpoint security vendors, of course, and network security vendors. What are but, some of the hot trends right now? What are some of the big groups of companies that have, have formed over the last few years or, or, or sectors within cybersecurity that have really yeah. come to be? Yeah. So I break the industry into 17 sectors. And, but the 17th one, um, when I started to realize was getting a lot of activity, you know, some of the early indicators are big funding rounds for mm -hmm. multiple players in, who offer the same solution. Um, and the one that just jumped out at me was API security. Mm. So, you know, so here you've got a, um, you know, a, a subset of application security, which I've been tracking for forever. Um, but all of a sudden it's getting all this attention. So I pulled it out as it's total separate categories. Good. So I could watch that last year. It grew 60% in headcount. 
so far this year uh, through November 1st, uh, it's grown 35%. Mm. Um, and, you know, there weren't any huge rounds this year, but, you know, the so now the, the hiring that's going on is real hiring, right? They're, they're hiring people because they're growing and get the revenue to support it. And then I'm, ser- I'm going to do that to vulnerability management too. The, the vulnerability management vendors do not like the fact that I treat vulnerability management as part of GRC. And because they, you know, because that's nobody wants to be part of GRC unless, <laughs> unless your customer happens to be, you know, the risk management people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going, well, look at the only, the only thing that requires you to do vulnerability management is your compliance regime. Right. It's, that's like the number one thing. And every time I hear somebody talking about risk management, they say, you got to discover all your assets and then you got to, you know, rank them based on their, you know, score them based on their value. And then you got to find the vulnerabilities and patch them. Um, and you know, my feelings about how useless all that is. Um, but all of a sudden I'm talking to startups and I go, wait a minute, you're, you're a brand new startup, you know, you're doubling in size every six months and you do vulnerability management. You know, I thought everybody either used Nessus, Tenable or Qualys or Rapid7. What's going on? You know, we've got totally established players that are doing the same thing I did at PwC with CyberCop um, or ISS for that matter. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing that's better than them? You know, there are only so many known vulnerabilities and everybody finds them all. Well, they're doing it for cloud and, you know, assets that, that the Qualys's and Tenables can't see or find. Um, so, I'm going to make everybody happy and put them in their own category. And then we'll have a big vulnerability management. And then we'll have, you know, cloud vulnerability management and in-memory vulnerability management, whatever mm-hmm. the categories break down to. Sure. Interesting. Well, you know, that's a, that's actually a good segue because talking about the, how, how the space has matured and focused and refocused and focused and refocused and, yep. and really to define what it is. Uh, we've been talking about XIOT for a while, mm-hmm. you and I, and, you know, I, IOT devices, the printers, the, the cameras, the voice over IP phones, OT devices, the SCADA, the manufacturing devices, and then network devices, NAS, wireless access points, load balancers, you name it, all these purpose-built devices with embedded firmware um, that do specialized things. It's it's becoming very apparent um, globally that this is one of the areas that cyber criminals and nation states are starting to focus a lot of time on. Um, and I kind of wanted to get your hot take on, you know, why why is that? Why why is XIOT now the new new, you know, you know, front line, if you will, uh, in the cyber arena? Because Quite honestly, go back three, four years, wasn't really a lot of talk about this. No, mm-hmm. no, there wasn't. And you know, I look at it as, and for me, IoT is actually the 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 model for a lot of you know when there's a new trend in technology, it tends to get deployed with no thought of security, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're first, um, you know, developing your your conference phone system, um, you don't think of hackers attacking it. And later on, when your smart engineers figure out how to add Wi-Fi to it or whatever and connect it to the wired network, um, then they just, oh, you know, there's never been an attack on it. So they're not thinking about what could happen. And over years, that just created all this security debt in all the devices. Um, I first started hearing about IoT security um, from Israeli startups um, because they were seeing the attacks. As a matter of fact, of course, in Israel, if everybody comes out of Unit 8200, they were engaging in those attacks against their adversaries. So they've got an idea for, well, people should do something about that. And the cool thing is that the, the IoT security uh, ecosystem is mirrors the overall IT security ecosystem, right? There's network, there's endpoint, there's vulnerability management and patching, uh, there's 
you know, scanning, you know, it's just everything. And there's identity and access and everything that we had before now applied to a bunch of stuff, which is really invaluable things, right? $50 things all over the place. And there just happened to be several billion of them that are uncontrolled, unpatched, um, unpatchable in some cases, and uh, just and connected to the network. So it's a perfect storm. Yeah. And so that's interesting because the way we look at it as well, Richard, is that it's part of you can talk about the attack surface. XIoT is part of the attack surface. Of course, it can be up yeah. to 30% of it for, uh, but you know, uh, and you look at things like approaching technologies that can help remediate and harden things and be preventative and proactive. XIoT is, should be part of that as well. And all of the detection and response and all those kinds of things. Um, but it, but it isn't necessarily, is it? And, you know, what do you think it is that, that today, when someone thinks attack surface management or technologies and that I'm going to deploy to help harden and remediate things, that XIoT those devices don't kind of are are not yet included in that. Is that wh- why is that? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think there will always be this divide in thinking in organizations mm-hmm. between um, kind of their work responsibilities, right? And the IT department is responsible in the most part for security. And so they think about IT assets and that's just all they focus on. So when you introduce a new thing, it takes a long time for them to understand that, no, this new thing is part of your remit as well. Cloud was just like that, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, there's cloud stuff, whatever. Mm. And, and mm. now that, you know, eventually all workloads will probably be in the cloud uh, or, you know, a private data center that's cloud-like, mm-hmm. um, they're encompassing it. The one thing that they're, they're almost barred from touching is OT. Um, it's really hard to walk into a, you know, manufacturing plant or a steel mill and tell them that, hey, I'm from IT and we're going to, you know, impose these controls and how you do things. We're going to slow down your processes. Very similar mm-hmm. to what the quality guys experienced in manufacturing plants in the past. It was like, yeah, sure, whatever, but just don't slow us down. You know, as soon as you slow us down, we're going to kick you out the door. And, you know, it's just history all over again. And and, and that's precisely what I think the cyber criminals and nation states are counting on. Because they know this is For a sure. big back door, as, as John was alluding to earlier, the the attack surface size. We're seeing that there's there's roughly three to five XIoT devices per employee in a company. So ten thousand yeah. people, thirty to fifty thousand devices. And then you step back and go, well, wait a second, what exactly are these devices? Well, they're Linux servers or Android or BSD or VXWorks if it's on the OT side or some other real-time operating system. So they're some in some cases, like some of these like higher-end security cameras. They're more powerful and capable than your laptop. They've got bigger mm-hmm. storage. Uh, they've got just the same protocols running. They're running Linux. They're, you can SSH it into them. You can load tools. You can scan for IT assets. You can download sensitive data. You can exfiltrate it. It's just like a laptop. The only difference is, is one, no one's looking at it. It's not being managed. And two, you can't deploy endpoint security controls on these guys. And you know the thing that just blows me away is if I told you that, 50,000 of your Linux servers in your environment had no password, were running high-level vulnerabilities, had old firmware, you'd, you'd, you'd go address it right away. But yeah. it, it, it's, yeah. it's, and I think it's changing. Well, I know it's changing because I've spent enough time with customers in the field now where I'm actually seeing they're like, wow, this, you're right, we need to address this. But do you feel that business leaders today, and I'm not even talking about sort of CISOs and other security professionals, but business leaders, do you think that they have grasped that these network security door controllers nope. and things? Nope. Uh, no, not even not close. Not even not close. Even close. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they may, they may see the popular articles about car hacks, right? It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen that movie. Um, but they, they don't just see all the network connected devices around them every day and wonder if those are vulnerable and 
to buy the latest cool smart TV and never worry. Uh, mm-hmm. with where is everything you say in the room going to a thing that can respond when you talk to it? And you think that's just a function of, you know, you said like, you know, I saw that movie. I saw that what happened to the Jeep, right? Or right. I, I saw this thing and are, are they, are they waiting for that, that big incident? And then, okay, now we get it. Oh, it's important. If <laughs> only it was a big incident that woke everybody up, you know, um, the, a lot of things I've learned over the years. One, um, when there's a new vulnerability, you can't yell at the top of your voice, patch everything. Um, because, you know, I did that when I was a neophyte at Gartner. And I, all of a sudden, I was getting all these calls from CIO, CIOs telling me I was an idiot, right? You can't patch a critical vulnerability in Solaris, uh, was the one I'm thinking of, um, because I've got 2,000 machines that have to be scheduled to be taken offline, patched, tested to make sure they didn't break anything and then put back online. That takes months. Mm -hmm. And by the time they've done that, there's another critical vulnerability. And that's always going to be the case with the exception of the cloud, where it's much, much easier to patch things in the cloud. Um, The other thing that I've learned is nobody pays any attention to devastating attacks on other companies or other organizations. It's always, that's them, that's not us. Mm-hmm. And I, I always predicted when, you know, everybody in the, uh, the critical infrastructure world have, have always been waiting for the major attack on power grids. And, you know, then we'll all wake up and the Congress will meet and we'll have a new funding for fixing the power grid. Well, that happened. You know, it happened in Ukraine. It happened twice, you know, like nine months apart. Um, and and we know who did it. We know how they did it. And and books have been written about it. And people say, oh, that's Ukraine. That's not mm-hmm. the United States. Can't happen here. Even though we see evidence of the same tools from the GRU in Russia uh, floating about our power, power grids and other control systems, nobody does anything about it. And they're still not going to. What will happen is there will be a devastating power outage here in the United States. And the power companies and the grid operators and everybody else will say, not our problem. You know, we told you we need to be more secure and you never gave us more money or uh, let us increase our rates to the subscribers to our power. Um, And Congress will have, you know, a whole bunch of, sessions and hearings and they will pass some ridiculously lame law that doesn't fix the problem uh you know signs a bunch of committees to study stuff and all the rest and you know it just goes on and on the only way it gets fixed is the individuals the you know individual companies to get hacked the executives are so upset about being hacked and embarrassed because it is it's like being physically attacked and mm-hmm. by an adversary. And once they feel that in their gut, then they react and they start applying the resources to fix it. So, you know, I, I also will get on a high horse and talk, you know, why about why security awareness training is completely useless, except for the security awareness training that the hackers are engaging in. Mm-hmm. They're going, you know, I'm not testing whether you'll click on a phishing email. I am getting you to click on a phishing email and then you are going to suffer for it. You know, you're going to have to pay me something in Bitcoin or I'm going to post your images online in public and embarrass you. And you're going to have to tell all your friends that you were hacked, uh, that you aren't really selling Ray-Ban sunglasses on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. And it's interesting. I mean, there's, you know, you look at, we see various attacks that are happening and many organizations might not even know that you've got the Mirai botnet, you've got botnets, you've got Mandian talked about the quiet exit where they're going to, you know, uh, attack you with traditional methods, maybe a phishing attack. And then they'll quickly pivot to say a printer, a VoIP or even a, even a programmable logic controller or some other type of OT sure. type device. And they're just going to sit there forever and do what they want to do. Um, yep. And a lot of, you know, either siphon terabytes of data off and, 
funnel it back with without you knowing, or just run bot, very sophisticated botnets. Those are there. Uh, many organizations might not even know that device has been compromised. But does it mean that we kind of need, you know, a Melissa virus or a slammer worm or something uh, to kind of get people's attention? Or, you know, I mean, because we could tell, we see this all the time. We see devices like, you know, they've been compromised by Mirai. I mean, it's very, it's yeah. all over. Uh, front and Fronton is, is out there. I mean, this thing can hack any XIRT device on the planet. It's a very sophisticated piece of nation state software. These things are there, but isn't really making a dent. Do we just need like a really big attack to happen or? Uh, you need the attacks to be just so constant that they have to do something, mm. right? And like you can't get your conference phones back online because as soon as you plug them in, they get compromised and you got to start over. Um, or you have to mm. re constantly replace them. You know, if your only solution is buy the new one, um, that's going to get expensive over time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it won't. You know, the, the big attacks, Slammer and I Love You and all that, did change things. Mm -hmm. But the change came from the vendors that came along with the solution and, yeah, and the startups that say, hey, the old way is no good. We got to do uh, this, the new yeah. way. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got network admission control, which luckily never worked because it was stupid. Um, but we still see vestiges of that, right? In the zero trust world. They say, hey, if if your device that you're logging in on is, you know, doesn't have the latest software patches, we're not going to let them on or we're going to trust them less. Mm -hmm. um, and that same thing. It's like, come on, every hacker in the world knows that you can make the device that you've compromised say anything you want to the network. Like, totally patched here. We're good to go. <laughs> yeah. You know, earlier you were talking about you know, CyberCop and ISS. And it made me think back to my early days of running Satan and, and Tone Loke oh, yeah. and installing, yeah. um, God, I think the first time I ran Checkpoint, it was actually on three and a half inch floppies and I was loading it on Solaris 2.6 on a Spark it, One Plus station. It right? always <laughs> amazes me what 12 year olds can do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think back to then and, you know, credential management back then, what it was like and, and, and hardening. And mm -hmm. it was it was very early days and John and I were talking about this the other day, how it feels like XIOT security today is kind of like IT security, like in the mid nineties. Totally. totally. Um, it's all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're walking in. Oh, oh, you mean I should change the password on my 5,000 printers? Oh, yeah. I shouldn't, I, it shouldn't just be set to whatever the, the, you know, Joe came with a van full of, full of printers and plugged him in and he doesn't care. He doesn't have a security development life cycle. He's just <laughs> physically installing these things. Yeah. And then, uh, just the level, the level of services that are running. You know, they've got Telnet and FTP and TFTP and SSH and HTTP and HTTPS and Wired and Wireless and Bluetooth. They've got everything up and running, and their firmware is, you know, in some cases it's end of life, in a lot of cases it's six, seven years old. In every case, it's full of vulnerabilities. I mean, these are basic things: manage your passwords, you know, harden your devices, uh, patch them and update them. But but I think what's different here is it's it's a question about automation and scale. Because like we said, three to five devices per employee, if you say go patch 50,000 devices like those CIOs that used to call you when you're at Gartner, they're saying, dude, are we supposed to arm everybody with a paperclip and they're going to go walk around and reset these devices? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when Chris Rulin first tell, you know, briefed me on Phosphorus, I remember going, huh, yeah, you know, what a no-brainer startup idea. You know, because we've seen it all before. We know exactly what has to be done. And the solution is, you know, a lot of work. You know, just the heavy lifting of, you know, classifying devices, having the latest firmware for them, coming up with a way to deploy 5,000 uh, unique passwords to 5,000 devices, and then find them again when you need to get back in to update the firmware. Mm -hmm. I say, wow, you know, this is like, you know, so simple to conceptualize, extremely difficult to do, um, but it's the solution. That, that's what these large organizations have to do. So you're just giving them the tools to do it. You know, Richard, I just, I got back from this, this long tour through the Middle East and, 
and uh, and Europe and and North America. And, uh, it was all kind of about the time that OpenSSL was announcing, hey, there's a new OpenSSL software package because there was, well, it was originally a critical level vulnerability, which got downgraded to a high level vulnerability. But OpenSSL affects um, a lot of things, um, both IT and, and XIOT. And some of our customers are like, oh my God, this is, this is you know, how big of an issue is this going to be for XIOT? And I, I wrote a little blog about it, but the kind of the, 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 the short notes for it are, is it something you should think about? Yes, it is. But you know what? You've got your password set to the default password on 25,000 of your devices already, and you're running firmware from 2006. Um, so let's put this in perspective. You know, what, how big yeah. of an issue is this? And it's just, there. there's so many problems that can, can be fixed with some actual really simple things, you know? Like you said, find out what I've got. Patch what I've got. Harden what I've got, manage the certs, manage the credentials. And again, these aren't crazy ideas. If you're just following that, you know, and we always say this in security, but if you get back to the basics, right, when it comes to XIOT, you've alleviated, you know, 95% of how that attack surface can be leveraged against you uh, in terms of what cyber criminals and nation states are doing. But it's just getting to that point. And like you said, your early conversations with Chris, it's about scale. It's about automation. It's about being able to do this safely. And that becomes really um, amplified when you're talking about now doing this in industrial control system environments, right? Mm -hmm. Where availability is absolutely key. And and what I was really um, kind of taken aback with was when I was in the Middle East, they're very eager to start rolling this out with industrial control systems. And the only big difference I really saw in one of them might just be, you know, there's, there's a certain mentality in some organizations on the OT side, whether or not they want to do any type of, you know, updates and password management, et cetera. But over there, a lot of their industrial control systems, they're brand spanking new. They, mm -hmm. They've just taken them out of their bubble tape. They, they've just installed them. They've, they've unwrapped them. They plug it. They're really new. They're not 20 years old and they're depreciating it like a turbine, right, over the next, you know, 20 years. So they're very eager to say, hey, I've got all this stuff. It's all connected. It's all online. Let's let's secure it. And they seem very open to 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 moving that way in a very rapid way. Not to say it's not being done in the U.S. I'm seeing it as well. But boy, they're going after it uh, with a hunger. It seems to me on the OT side uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, do you, is that something that you've experienced and you've seen sort of in in, in your communications? I, I have in other realms, not yeah. in IoT, in mm -hmm. in particular in um, you know. Back when I was doing speaking circuit stuff, I'd be in Brazil and, and Colombia, and I was always amazed because they're talking about bringing broadband to people, and they would have phenomenal cellular inter infrastructure compared to the U.S. Um, because they didn't have the wired infrastructure to begin with, and they just leapfrogged. And Estonia is the best example of that, right, where they have more cell phones than population. And, you know, everybody's got one or two cell phones. And I see that in uh, young uh, and emerging countries mm -hmm. that they're investing and and they have everybody's experience to learn from. You know, and the one thing I want to know is if they're putting in manual overrides, you know, because we should be learning from Ukraine. They got back online because they could deploy people to throw switches, which mm -hmm. the U.S. has been getting away from. Yeah. Um, and what the interesting thing, going back to when you started, when we started the, the early conversation, you were talking about vulnerability management and that market and how yep. here it comes again. And <clears throat> one of the things that, that observations that I like to note in, in security is a lot of billions of dollars of VC money and companies, uh, you know, discovering assets, right? Whether it's from a vulnerability yep. management side or an NBAD side or an enterprise asset discovery, all of this stuff, right? Um, and, and one of the hypotheses I have there is that that all of those investments and all of those companies doing that have kind of also convinced a lot of companies that you really can't do much more than try to discover these things and see how sick they are. Right? You've, yeah. you've got yeah. loads of vulnerability, seven-year-old firmware, default credentials, the, the expired self-signed certificates, I mean, on and on and on, right? Um, um, but there's a mindset that, well, you can't really do anything about it. So let's just make sure we discover them and show you what's wrong. 
and yep. then, you know, stay there. Um, we're, we're, you know, new tools for XIOT, us included, can actually say, no, 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 you actually can go fix things. And right. as an example, all the things Brian outlined before that let's, let's update your credentials. Let's, let's do some simple hardening. Let's, let's update the certificates. We're not even getting to firmware yet and look at all the things we can do. Um, do you think that that mindset from, from just being told over and over and over again, you really can't fix these? Is that also something that we're kind of trying to get over? in this space that people just don't even think you can do anything about it or is that real? Yeah, I, I think, you know, they, they want to have, in order to measure their risk, they mm -hmm. need to know what they have, which, you know, that's just Rumsfeld speaking from the grave because mm -hmm. um, he introduced this whole idea in the first place. And so the first step is find everything you've got and then start mm -hmm. measuring stuff about it. And that makes people comfortable you know, to narrow the un, the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, you know, keep doing that, of course. <laughs> you should know what you have. And frankly, CISOs and, and IT departments are control freaks. So they definitely don't like shadow IT and people just doing stuff, right? They, they want to analyze it and figure out the best product to create that solution that fits in with the rest of their stuff. And they don't mm -hmm. want to violate Microsoft only policies. Um, and you know, they eventually crack when pressured by senior executives that say, no, I'm going to use my Chromebook or whatever they want. But, uh, that I, you know, I think that's the case. I think the advantage in IOT is that while these systems are critical, they're not, um, they're, they're, they're connected because they're signaling and they're controlled and they're doing mm -hmm. stuff like that. But they, with the exception of the power grid, um, they can't ca have cascading effects, right? Mm -hmm. if, so if you take one offline, it's just not available while it's offline, while you update the firmware, for instance. Um, and if you actually reset a password, on an IOT device, uh, nobody's going to notice because nobody ever logged into it. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you're not going to get a call from in the Pentagon. It would be the two star who says, I can't get into my system. What'd you do to it? Not going to happen. So you can just do it. And I think it's, it's almost a, uh, much closer to a solvable problem than it is with large, you know, server networks. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. A lot of our customers that are using our solutions, sometimes the groups are part of the vulnerability assessment team. Sometimes they're part of the patching team. Sometimes that red and blue team have combined into a purple team and, you know, they, they both kind of use it. But um, what we're finding is how they deploy, how they utilize it and how they automate it. It's a very quick turn up time. And maybe that's because I, I come in from my my sim days where we had POCs that lasted uh, years. There's probably some that are, are still going on, and I haven't done it for 15 years. <laughs> They're probably still in POC. <laughs> they were just so so long and sticky. Um, but a as we wrap up here, Richard, there's a you know you you've done so many things in your career. You've been an analyst. You've written so many great books. One of my favorite was, of course, Up and to the Right. Um, now you've got the, the analyst dashboard that the industry is all abuzz about. And I think you probably more than anybody have your fingers on the pulse of the security industry of it, it, itself. Uh, you know, what's your crystal ball say for, you know, I don't even want to say five years, but over the next year or two, what are, what are going to be the, the new hot themes? Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm watching the so-called data security posture management. So it's mm -hmm. been, you know, GRC has seen a, a burst of activity um, and IoT obviously is right in the middle of that uh, right now, but it's time to go back to data security. And I'm seeing that with the so-called data protection companies who are, you know, backup and recovery companies. Um, all of a sudden they're getting into security because that's, you know, backup and recovery is the best ransomware defense there is. Um, so they're getting into security and there's certain thing about in, in messaging around ransomware. Mm -hmm. So, but it's time to turn the old stodgy data discovery solutions into security solutions that, you know, highlight once again, it's, 
you know, there's the vulnerability approach. It's, you know, discover where your data is and, you know, does it need to be there and then create policies around it to, uh, you know, protect it and eliminate it if it's not supposed to be where it is. And that ties into all the privacy legislation. Um, so I'm, so I'm thinking that's going to be a pretty big thing, but in the meantime, in the, you know, on the front lines of countering targeted attackers, we are going to see the so-called supply chain attacks over and over and over. And nothing that CISA is talking about, nothing that NIST is releasing addresses the fundamental problem of you can't trust a software update. Mm. You know, it's going to be compromised because, of course, the NSA has done that. Uh, now the GRU has done that. SRV has done that. Um, everybody knows how to do it. China's going to do it. North Korea's going to do it. Iran's going to do it. And cyber criminals are going to do it. And you can't just keep hammering the software developers to do a better job. We've been doing that for 10 years. We've been mm -hmm. telling them to shift left, you know, basically stop doing your job and make it make secure crappy code. Um, they're not going to do that. They have to get to market and they have to make money to justify all the investment in them. And some will, and they can say, we've got a stamp of approval from NIST. And that's not going to help them. People are still going to buy the product with the feature they want, and they won't care that their CICD doesn't match the NIST framework. They're, so you have to have something to look at the software that comes in the door, digitally signed, perfectly encrypted, the hashes are all good, match, 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 good to go, install it. And that will change as soon as the Microsoft Update Server Network is compromised. <laughs> That's, that's, that's very insightful. It's Richard, Brian, and I could talk to you all day. Uh, it's, uh, it's such a joy to have you today. I, we can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, and Richard, there's, there's, you've got books, you've got your dashboard quickly. How can our listeners go find some of these things? Where do they go to, to get them and find you and, and buy your yeah, books? And yeah, if you just, you know, connect to me or follow me on LinkedIn, you can't avoid Let's see all of that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, again, thanks to uh, our guests. Uh, thanks, Brian, our host, and our guests, Richard Seenan. Thanks to you both. Thanks, John. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Thanks, guys. And remember, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contes. See you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast. Podcast.